You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. This week, we're recording from the Climate Nexus studio in New York City. Few of us are out here, and because we're all in New York, we decided we were going to do an episode on rural development. Joining me is Anna Klassen, IATP's Director of Rural Strategies, and our Executive Director, Juliette Michaud. Um, Anna, we'll start with you. Um, for the last couple of years, you've been running this program out of IATP called the Rural Climate Dialogues. Um, Tell us about the program and how it uh, got started. Yeah. Thank you. The Rural Climate Dialogues really originated in a space where we were seeing community engagement happen around climate change that wasn't really meeting people in rural communities where they were at. Um, and I, I say that meaning it wasn't hearing what their concerns were around climate change, extreme weather events, and all the other community challenges, social challenges that are impacting rural communities today, and um, creating and carving out the space for talking about the, all of those in a complex, layered way. And those um, of us who were really hashing out this concept um, c- connected with the Jefferson Center, who had this model called the Citizen's Jury. And the Citizen's Jury seemed to be the perfect type of platform because it brings into a conversation the real makeup of a community. It's really like a jury, like you would be called to jury duty, um, but you are selected at random but balanced to be a representative of your community. So around climate change, we saw a lot of conversations happening where you would have people who are either climate deniers or very passionate about working on climate change and really missing the middle, um, the very complex um, conversations in the middle. So that was where we started integrating that process and then realizing that community engagement um, process, the whole dialogue, the whole rural community dialogue, climate dialogue as we call it, needed to have stakeholder engagement at the front end, needed to have involvement with youth and the high school and bringing them into the same lovely platform for being able to have challenging conversations and then needed that that we didn't disappear after that citizen's jury was held, that we helped them take their action plan and move it forward. And um, Juliet, so IATP works on a lot of issues, and we know how to connect the dots between all the issues we work on. But, you know, uh, the the interesting thing about the Rural Climate Dialogues for me is that it's not necessarily connected to trade or agriculture in sort of an intuitive way. Can you talk about what that connection is and how we decided this was our project? Sure. The, the, um, there are many different kinds of rural communities, and I think that as, um, as, as right now, particularly in the United States, we talk about rural as though it's a kind of monolithic place. Um, not all rural communities have a large agriculture um, uh, side to them per se in terms of how the community is operating. Many, many, many of them do have a large part in them that's very, very concerned with and involved with agriculture. Um, I think at IATP we understood that um, that it, our interest in climate change, our interest in rural communities, goes beyond a kind of narrow frame. Uh, the idea that agriculture is narrow it is in it of itself a, a silly idea. Uh, it encompasses so many different layers of the economy, of the rural economy. Um, and the Rural Climate Dialogues um, are also speak to IATP's absolute commitment to 
working with people so that they are creating their own solutions through their own lens uh, for problems that, that, that we, um, as outsiders to that community, cannot pretend to define or to give a solution to. One of the great things about the Rural Climate Dialogues for me is that um, take, the, take the normal picture that, that any listener might have of going into a community and having everybody sit in front of you and having you up on a platform delivering some sort of lecture or some sort of interactive participative um, you know, scenario so that rural people can be heard. Um, this is not how a rural climate dialogue works. A rural climate dialogue is not us talking at all. Um, it's, it's, it's people from the community with experts that they want to talk to, that they learn through a methodology how to question so that they can question experts in the field of weather or in the field of what's happening in their community and they can come to conclusions, they can discuss the solutions and they can move forward and it is a very different picture and yields remarkable results on, on different levels. So it's perfect for ITP. Great. Uh, so, Anna, walk us through kind of how this three-day process works and, and what the steps are that lead up to it, because it really is kind of a year-round event. Absolutely. So, early on, we work, if we're working in a community and we've chosen this rural community, we go and we start talking to the city administrator. We start talking to people in the community who just keep directing us to who else we should start to engage with. But then, Equally important, we start working in the high school. In all of the three communities in Minnesota that we have worked in, we worked with the high school agricultural and FFA advisors, and also the social studies and civics teachers. It was a profound partnership because the civics teachers were fascinated to have this new platform for discourse and debate uh, around a politically divisive uh, topic. The agricultural teachers knew that their students who take a wide range of classes that really uh, under the umbrella of natural resource development um, and even broader that they were many of the future stewards of their landscape of their community of their region in the future and yet they um, you know from their own opinions and from their family opinions had really um, t a lot of tension around climate change and the discussions that were happening uh, either in the news or in their community and what they wanted to contribute towards that so we carved out what we call a mini citizen's jury, a mini dialogue process at the high school. As those months are leading up to what we call the three-day citizen's jury, this is also the space where the community starts to hear conversations around um, the dialogue and what's happening, and they hear it from their youth, they hear it from their neighbors, and get brought into the process in that way. And then this, the Jefferson Center um, sends out and has this method and partnership a blanket postcard to the community. And I say the community, we always work on this county-city basis because we might have this dialogue in the county seat or in the larger city within the county, um, but all the county residents receive a postcard with information to say we're going to have a conversation around extreme weather event, um, we're, we're going to pay participants to be there. Are you interested? Send this postcard back. We then get the basic information so that we can have um, the representation we need in the room, gender diversity, um, age, um, education levels, but also um, where people fall politically and where they fall on climate change. And so that that makeup when we select those individuals at random is representative of that county. 
So then we get to the citizen's jury um, in, in format, um, as Juliet alluded to, they hear from experts that we um, help find those experts locally uh, based off of those stakeholder meetings that we had, bring in insurance experts to talk about how their insurance rates have climbed, bring in um, local um, agricultural specialists talking about the transition in crops based on the change in weather patterns. Um, they hear from experts and learn how to question them, and their questioning is able to parse out, are they hearing any opinion from those experts? And in, in, or are they feeling that um, what they're hearing is coming unbiased? They pull out and parse out what's the most important information to share with their neighbors. Then by day two, they're grappling with what they've learned and where they wanna take it. How do they wanna become resilient as a community? And then by day three, they craft a statement for their neighbors and an action plan that they literally, as 15 citizens sitting around a table, craft word for word of how they feel um, about what's moving forward. And then that action plan exists for the community. And um, some people, you know, that might be the end of their involvement in that. They were a citizen. They contributed their time, um, intensive time, three days. Others feel motivated to action. Um, and other things bubble up over time. Um, but I will say the stakeholders also become engaged. The city administrators say, we have a plan here that we know was truly vetted by a broad section of our community um, and move forward with that in very different ways. The last thing I just want to note that's extremely critical and important to the process is that citizens show up as citizens. So often in the space where we have public engagement, especially in rural communities where people wear multiple hats, they show up representing maybe the township board that they're a member of, or maybe their school or their church, or the local um, you know, farm bureau or farmers union. We ask them to show up as individuals. And in that space, they share their personal experience with extreme weather events. And that is grounding because as a community of 15 citizens, they learn where they thought they didn't have shared alignment, where they thought they were on different ends of the political spectrum, you name it, they understand that they have far more in common than divides them, and that those commonalities, that shared love and trust for their community, um, and their shared interest in improving the quality of life for their children is enough for them to set aside their differences and work together. Yeah. Um I want to come back to some of the stories. Um, but one of the things that is striking me um, about the Rural Climate Dialogues and really kind of where the work at IATP is going is this idea of meeting people where they're at, um, whether it's the uh, Rural Climate Dialogues or the, the paper we just did um, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on agroecology in Mexico, or even some of the more kind of complex thinking we've been doing about NAFTA, where uh, we we really kind of realized that it, uh, an immediate withdrawal of NAFTA right now would actually end up hurting the same farmers and workers that were hurt the first time. Um, that that this idea of transition, this idea of meeting people where they're at. Um, uh, Juliet, can you talk about where we might be going with that, or what how that kind of relates to the broader picture of what of IATP? Sure. Uh Meeting people where they're at. I, the first time that I ever, probably I ever, thought about the concept, um, I believe was reading Malcolm X because it was something that he um, strongly 
strongly believed in, that, that we want people to be further down whatever road it is we're working on, uh, but if you, dis if you dismiss the people who aren't at that point, then you will never grow your movement, you will never be able to grow uh, a powerful kind of social awareness and social change. And I, I, I want to reflect back on what, what Anna was saying. Um, when, when, when people uh, in, a, in any kind of community, in a neighborhood community in Minneapolis, uh, here in Manhattan, um, in, when people in any kind of a community are afforded a chance to, to sit and talk to each other, um, and I don't want to confuse this space with the, with the safe space. Um, uh, that expression is being used in many ways right now. But when people are given a chance to come together and discuss uh, in a non-politicized environment uh, issues that are affecting them, um, they come along where they're at changes, and it changes it can change really rapidly. Um, and we can see that because we ask people before they come into the dialogues where they're at, and we ask them where they're at in different ways after the dialogues, and they are indeed in a different place. Um, part of the, the idea at IATP of meet people where they're at is that um, you cannot ever, ever make the mistake that you think you know where they're at. This is the other, this is the other big, this is the really big part of the question. How do you know where somebody is at? The only way you can know where somebody is at is to find a way for you to be able to listen to them, um, a way to engage with them so that, so that you'll know where they're at. And more importantly, they will know something about where you're at because they don't know that either. So it's, it's understanding that the myths and stereotypes and, um, comfort zones that we build around ourselves so that we can feel confident, um, so that we're not afraid, um, so that we are, are, uh, are not faced every day with the kind of uncertainty that we're actually faced with every day, um, is part of how we work at IATP. And, and we can talk about that with, with different types of rural communities. We can talk about it with trying to understand our politicians uh, in our state level governments, with trying to understand what's happening on our national level scene, we are confused. And I think that kind of embracing that confusion is the best thing we can do. I want to pick up on that. I mean, that complexity of embracing the unknown or that you don't have to know everything. I, what I want to add to that is that it's exactly true meeting people where they're at. But we also walk into that room and acknowledge to those rural people that you know, and this helps being from a rural community. And, you know, I want to say, I can't tell that tell you that I know exactly what you're going through, but <clears throat> I hear you and I see you that you are on the front lines of climate change, that you don't need somebody else to be telling you what is happening from a client science climate science standpoint when you're feeling the effects of the extreme weather events and they're not just impacting, you know, your your day-to-day, -day, but your livelihood, your potential for your job and um, your heritage of your, of your farm, for example, all of this is something that starts to make farmers, for example, feel that they've been dismissed, that someone doesn't has to tell them that climate change is happening to them. So we meet them there, and then we connect the dots. We had 
three conversations, three climate dialogues in rural communities in Minnesota, but that wasn't enough. We needed to bring those citizens, those rural citizens together with state agency staff and representatives and those who are delivering and carving out climate programs and policies for the entire state, but really welcome the opportunity to hear firsthand from their rural constituents about how those programs or policies are working for them or what programs and policies that they didn't even know they could take advantage of and that existed. Mm -hmm. I, I want to pick up on that because I've been um, I've been lucky enough to um, be at two of two of the three dialogues and and um, sit in the you know the the mouse in the corner listening to what's going on in the room and it's been um, it's been a great experience. I am fascinated with the uh, the kind of aspect of this that uh, it wasn't really clear to me before going in and seeing it kind of emerged in my. In, in, in my own consciousness, at the different ways that providing this space, um, the different ways, um, the different spin-offs that that actually has. And what you were just talking about, having people from state agencies at the dialogue, um, particularly, I think there were people from Fish and Wildlife, and um, this was in Winona. And this was a community that came together and found each other across the table talking about what they loved about the, their community. And the love that they had for the natural world around them, the reason why they were where they were, for a lot of them, was their environment that they were living in. And I think that they didn't, they didn't know each other across the table, and they may have assumed that other people across the table shared this love, but it was a very intimate coming together of people. When they heard from fish and wildlife what was happening to, their, to the trout in their streams because of the change of water temperature that was going on, um, it, you could see it was a visceral realization that something was happening here um, that they may have suspected, that they may have denied, and here was just information about what was going on. Um, and at the same time, the, the state agencies that later came back to you to say, we, have, we haven't had that conduit. We haven't had that, taunt, that, that, that path so that people in the community can actually know what we do have to offer and how we need to work together. So this, this part of being a citizen, this part of discovery of um, I am the government, it is my responsibility to participate in this government and my joy to participate in it, um, was was uh, exciting and surprising to me how strongly it was expressed. Um, so now that we've we we went through the first two year cycle of doing the rural climate dialogues in Grand Rapids, Morris, and Winona, Minnesota, in the state convening, and now we're we're in the second phase, which is actually kind of taking some of these action plans and engaging more stakeholders to turn it into actual policy. Um, how's that going? It's going. That's what's most important. I mean, it's going really well. I, we, what we've recognized is we, the citizens' jury does a fabulous job of bringing together the root, the base of that community, the citizens. The state agency meeting really brought down like our highest level at a, at a state level of staff. We know that a lot of things happen or don't happen in a community at that local level of government. County commissioners, city uh, mayors and council members, township board. And because those people in those positions are often 
you know, put in this space where we have to sign off on something or not versus just really engage in a heart-to-heart conversation. And we started in Winona of being able to just present an overview of the conversation that happened through the Rural Climate Dialogue, not with something to vote up or vote down, not with, you know, the space that um, had to have a stance on one way or another. It was so... I don't know the word to describe it other than it felt so authentic to be in that space once there was the realization like this happened without us being a part of it and the citizens have came here to showcase what they learned, what they want us to know, and let's move forward from here without saying that there's some, you know, wind company even knocking on the door, development pushing, somebody sort of pushing it in one direction. It's really our plan, our community. So we're advancing that, and we're advancing to figure out how in those rural communities we can continue to help and assist the move towards a clean energy future and what it looks like to have to continuous checkpoints that those resources in that transition to a clean economy stay local. And that in that transition, that, that wealth of being, you know, un, you know, not having to rely on other sources of energy doesn't become extracted. Uh, one of the other aspects that, that um, became very, very clear was the, to me, was, was the uh, value of local plans uh, with the kind of energy surveys that high school students had done in those local community uh, representatives thinking through what kind of priorities were going to be important for very limited budgets. Um, was, it, was it that we're going to have to fix our infrastructure? We're going to have to fix our roads because these weather events are seriously impacting them? Was it our public buildings are incredibly energy inefficient? We can see this now because the, because the high school has done a survey that has told us exactly where the efficiency is and where the inefficiency is. Does that mean we have to, to should we build a new public building? Is there a way to retrofit it? This is real stuff. This isn't conceptual, oh, we should be energy efficient. This is really um, from, from the high school on through to the mayor um, in, in, I think, all three cases, although I, Anna, you'll have to answer that. A community really saying, getting down to the nitty-gritty, practical, this is what we need to do. And, when, and, and, and recognizing that the resources are limited, so therefore, what are those resources that we don't even know about that we're not taking advantage of? That comes up in the dialogue as well. So people become planners. They, they come in as questioners, and they leave as part of a planning process. And that's impressive. Absolutely impressive and necessary. I mean, coming from the planning field, coming from a space where you realize and understand how communities need to be at a certain size or scale to have the resources of professionals who offer their services of giving this vision for the city. And in the lack of that space being held uh, with professionals and access to that, the opportunity to first have the base conversation of what long-term resiliency looks like or why it's needed or what the increase in these extreme weather events and the impact it has on these infrastructure that is the base of our community, it carves out the space to make those important decisions about short-term versus long-term investments. And 
And people understand, oh, we're either going to make a short-term investment in this or a long-term, but they don't usually have the luxury of the space and time to understand why and how weather and economic and politics and other layers are impacting that decision. So, Anna, the reason you're here in New York City is that uh, you're in the first stages of a fellowship from the Nathan Cummings Foundation to figure out how to take this model that we piloted in Minnesota or did the first phase of in Minnesota and scale it up so that we can be replicating this or you can be replicating this, someone can be replicating it uh, around the country. Um, how's that going? And what talk about what your kind of broad vision is for this, because I know you are kind of in the first phases of it. Yes. Uh, I am currently on fellowship with the Nathan Cummings Foundation and you know, it's a space that I'm grateful for, a foundation here in New York City as we sit talking about rural communities, that there is a heightened interest and a willingness to take a risk on what it looks like to invest in this landscape, in these people, in these places. What we know uh, at IATP and working in rural communities is that if you've been to one rural community, you've only been to one rural community. And so even saying the world scale up or scale out, you know, it, it sort of makes, it makes me tentative. It always has. But what's wonderful about that is you figure out how you take something that, you know, as we have figured out this process in Minnesota that we feel very confident and passionate about, what it looks like to have this process be brought to a community in the Mississippi Delta. And who are the partners on the ground that the rural organizations, the rural economic organizations, the policy organizations, who also are hungry for this type of platform? And how do we involve them? But furthermore, how do we bring the discourse of what we hear in rural communities through the dialogue to a larger audience? Mm -hmm. We're in an interesting time today. I mean, where we are politically and socially, uh, I think... Maybe through history, we will always say that we've never been as divided as we are today as far as where we live and that we live around people who share our ideologies and our viewpoints. Yet we have this opportunity through media and many other sources to better understand each other um, and to understand not our opinion on something, but why we feel that way. What experiences in our life make us hold that opinion on something and to respect where people come from, where they start, because we can't dismiss, you know, somebody's visceral reaction to something if it's based on their personal experience. And so I'm looking, you know, in the fellowship, I'm looking forward to partnering and being able to be here in New York City and partner with unlikely partners um, to figure out how together we can build that empathy and we can still do that in a way where we're talking about climate change, of all things. And we can build a greater collaborative humanity as rural and urban citizens and understand, especially under this framework of a clean energy future, how we are interdependent and interdependent on each other. And that's a good thing. At IATP, we are um, stubborn about insisting that we look at big systems and that we ground our work also locally, at the state level, national level, international level. Uh, so we have a little, almost, it's almost a, a little exercise, mind, a mind game um, that I play with myself all the time, a connect the dot mind game. And when I think about the rural climate dialogues in IATP, and I think about our name, 
Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Um, how does all this come in? So let me give you one version of connecting those dots. Trade agreements, to a large extent, determine how the economy of the United States operates, and that also means how agriculture, large-scale agriculture operates in terms of um, how much we're going to export to support our economy. Trade agreements are very important. Our farm systems, our agricultural policies, are extremely important um, uh, for many things, including land use, including climate change, because agriculture is a great contributor of GHG gases. Um, so agricultural policy itself is extremely important, very much related to trade policy, that first dot. The Farm Bill in the United States coming up, the biggest piece of legislation that we have um, that has to do with many, many things, including hunger, including nutrition, including the availability of SNAP programs to people who need uh, help, and including farm subsidies, um, including incentives for farmers to be able to, to have better practices. Um, and those farmers are in rural communities, absolutely. So we've got trade, agricultural policy, we have the farm bill, we have the rural climate dialogues also very interested in climate change and how to address climate change. And when Anna talks about resilience, agriculture is one of those places where resilience is extremely important. Um, I think that somebody who's been through a rural, rural climate dialogue could very swiftly, uh, with some conversation, connect those dots and, and not see them as being far apart from which one another, but being very linked to one another. From that rural community, all the way up to international trade negotiations. And if we don't see those things as connected, we will miss the boat entirely. Anna Colossus and Juliet Majo, thanks a lot for joining me on Uprooted. Happy to be here. Happy to be here, Josh. For more information about what you heard today, including information on the Rural Climate Dialogues, you can visit our website at www.ietp.org. Thanks for listening. And we're recording live from New York. It's Uprooted, the Yay! podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy.